The Lord be with you. Early risers, we're welcome. We're glad you're here. We're going to miss that song, aren't we? Every week. 31 weeks of the same song. Welcome. We're glad you're here. We're doing this story. I just want to tell you that uh, at the end of the service, I like we always do, we're going to have the offering, but I want to give you a little heads up because we're going to try to do something special this week. Uh, I mean by we, meaning you. We're going to try to uh, be able to do the largest offering we've ever done today. And some of you don't know that we're doing that. We're hopefully going to put the fence up and break ground on, on our new edition this week. So we're really hoping that God doesn't make it snow on Tuesday again like he has the last couple of weeks and that we're able to actually move, start moving some dirt and get our fence up and get everything rolling so that we can have a 250-seat chapel over there ready to go for Christmas time and a foyer and a whole lot of other things that we're going to be able to do with it, uh, which I'm excited about. Uh, yeah, you can clap about that. We've been, if you've been around here for a while, we've been trying to get this chapel going for like five years. I mean, really. And, and, and so we really, really desperately need it. So at the end of the service, I just want to encourage you, whether you've given before or not, whether you've been a part of the cannonball or you don't even know what that means, uh, maybe you're behind on it. You could catch up. Maybe you don't even, you know, you weren't even in on it. Uh, let's do what we can at the end of the service today, because I really want to make a, a big splash as we get ready to go into this season and get ready to see how God is going to work through this. Um, I, I just got to tell you, last weekend we had a record crowd, no, you know, Pulaski weekend, you know, no less, um, 7,500 people. Uh, the Sunday night service is just cranking, and, um, and, and for some reason we hit this crazy, you know, this crazy subculture of Sunday night people. They're, they have funny looking hair, and they're, you know, I mean, they're just different, but they, there's like a thousand of them coming out. It's awesome, and if you're one of them, we love you. Uh, so that's really, really cool, and, and it's just blowing up things. So now we're at five. Just got a lot of stuff to do. Uh, speaking of the snow, I had to be in Louisville this week. Very important. I was supposed to go out on Tuesday. The snow's getting ready to come in. I had to fly out on Monday so that I didn't get, you know, snowed out again. I landed from Kenya last Tuesday in the middle of the snowstorm. I don't know what it is about the Tuesday thing. But as I was at this meeting with a bunch of pastor friends working on this convention thing we were working on, I, uh, I was texting my wife directions on how to use the snowblower. And, and it did, just did not seem chivalrous to my friends who were around. They're like, yeah, I can't believe you left your wife at home with, a, you know, with this blizzard. And I, you know, I, I just got to be honest. Don't you guys think any woman who lives in Chicago ought to know how to use a snowblower? I mean, for crying out loud. And, and that's, you know, that kind of reminded me of this Jeff Foxworthy thing. I just got me, because the weather's been so goofy lately, Jeff Foxworthy did a thing about Chicago. Forget about rednecks. He said this, if you've ever worn shorts and a parka at the same time, you might be from Chicago. If you've ever switched from heat to AC to back to heat again in the same day, you might be from Chicago. If you can drive 75 miles an hour through two feet of snow in a raging blizzard without flinching, you might be from Chicago. If you carry jumpers in your car and your wife knows how to use them, you might be from Chicago. If driving in the winter is better than driving in the summer because the potholes are at least full of snow, you might be from Chicago. If you know the four seasons as almost winter, winter, still winter, and road construction, you might be from Chicago. If you design your kids' Halloween costumes to fit over a snowsuit, you might be from Chicago. How about the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man, honey? That's who you could be. 
Well, I'm glad that you're here. Uh, I'm glad that it snows on Tuesday and not Saturday. I'm glad that you're here and you woke up and you got here because we're going to talk about Jesus. So, I mean, we're going through this story in 31 weeks, and it's a little bit of a challenge because then we get to Jesus, which is what we've been you know, hoping to do all through the whole Old Testament, and we only really get a few weeks to talk about him because we've got to get through the whole story in 31 weeks. So we talked last week about Jesus' ministry, how he did amazing things in three years and less than one term of office. Jesus changed the world from B.C. to A.D., and then we talked about how he did it. I want to talk some more about him today. Uh, I, I talked briefly about this last week, and the people saw the miraculous sign that he did. This is after he fed the 5,000, and they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him a king by force, withdrew to the mountain by himself. How do you make a king by force? Hey, do you ever figure that? This sounds like a Monty Python moment to me. I don't want to be king, you know? I'm not dead yet. Thump. I mean, this, this is what it seems like. It doesn't make any sense. So Jesus literally runs away from the crowd who's trying to make him into a king. You know about the, the, the miracle that Jesus walked on the water. What you don't realize if you read this in order is that the only reason Jesus walked on water is because he was trying to get away from the crazy people. And that was the fastest way he could go. And once the crowd, it says, realized that neither Jesus or his disciples were there anymore, they got in their boats and they followed him to Capernaum on the other side in search of Jesus. They, they got in the boats. They're paparazzi. They wanted so much of Jesus. So I have to ask myself today, why was Jesus so popular? What was it that was so extraordinary about Jesus? And I'll give you a couple of things just today. The first one is his teaching. His teaching was extraordinary. It says in Mark 1, when the people were, the people were amazed and they asked each other, what is this new teaching and with authority? Who is this guy? It's a new teaching. What was new about it? Well, you've probably read, hopefully you read, go back and pick it up, the Sermon on the Mount in the story today. Uh, we we have this the, the most important teaching that Jesus does, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He sits down and he does this whole thing from this mountainside. He's able to teach on the mountainside because of the acoustics, because he's God and he understands how the acoustics are going to work. Picture my wife and I right at the very spot where he did this. Um, it just, it's such a beautiful thing to go to the Sea of Galilee and be standing on the shores and just imagine that you're one of the people that's sitting there listening to Jesus do the Sermon on the Mount. It's amazing. And we have this teaching here, and Jesus, Jesus gets up and he starts to teach, but he doesn't teach like anybody else. It's a new teaching. And with authority. What, what, what kind of authority? Does that mean that Jesus got up and said, Now blessed are the poor in spirit. Amen. Amen. Is that how he did it? I mean, I, personally, I don't really like to be yelled at when somebody's preaching, you know? I mean, that's just not my style, and I don't think that's what Jesus did. If I want to be yelled at, I'll walk into Wrigley in a sock shirt. I got that figured out. But Jesus was not a screamer, right? You've done that, haven't you? Uh, Jesus was not a screamer. Jesus did that. was not authority like, I'm going to get up and tell you people what to do. It was the opposite. The only people he ever yelled at were the religious people. And when he taught, he taught with compassion. He taught in such a way that people were drawn to him. He said, as he began this famous sermon, blessed are you. Nine different times, blessed are you. What does that mean? Well, some say it means happy. Yeah, it means that. But it was in Greek literature, it was actually like, like describing the Greek gods who lived above everyone else. They were immortal. There was a, it was way more than happy. It was like you are in a special category. You are like, a, today's 
vernacular we'd say, you're like a rock star. You, you're able to be above everything else if, if, if what? If, if, you, if, you, if you pour in spirit, if you mourn, if you're meek, if you're a peacemaker. I mean, it's crazy. Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount was upside down. It's just like we talked about last week. He's teaching these people and they're listening and pretty soon they're looking at Him like this. Oh, what a feeling. And we're dancing on the sea. Is he upside down? Yeah, he is. That's what he was doing. He was teaching these people, and they're like, this doesn't make any sense. And they're all looking at him kind of sideways because no teacher in his right mind would possibly say that the poor are actually blessed. No teacher in his right mind would say that the meek or the peacemakers or the persecuted are the ones who are really going to be blessed. Why would Jesus do that? Because Jesus looked at everything differently than we do. Let me read for you a paraphrase of the Beatitudes written by Eugene Peterson. He has a whole Bible called the Message Bible where he kind of took the words and just put them into modern day language. When Jesus sat down drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside and arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and he taught his climbing companions. And this is what he said. You are blessed when you are at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God. You are blessed when you feel that you have lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one who is most dear to you. You are blessed when you are content with just who you are. No more, no less. That is the moment you find yourself the proud owner of everything that cannot be bought. You are blessed when you work up a good appetite for God. He is food and drink and the best meal you will ever have. You are blessed when you are meek. At the moment of being careful you will find yourself cared for. You are blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You are blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of competing or fighting. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You are blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution because the persecution will drive you even deeper into God's kingdom. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, that's upside-down teaching. And they were amazed. They were amazed at his teaching. They were also amazed when he told parables because that's what he did a lot. He would tell stories. <coughs> he would share a parable, and then he would explain the parable. And here's the important part. Then he would live the parable. For example, he told a story of a guy who uh, got beat up along the road and got robbed, and he was laying there, and pretty soon a religious guy came by, and the religious guy said, ah, I can't help him, i got other things to do, and he walked by on the other side. And pretty soon another religious guy came by and said, no, nope, I can't do it either, and he walked by on the other side. And finally, a guy from the opposite race, from the opposite group, from the opposite team, people that didn't like each other at all, he shows up and he says, well, this guy's hurt, I'm going to take care of him, I don't care what his background is, he's laying there bleeding, and he takes care of him, puts him on his donkey, takes him to a motel, pays to have his care taken care of, and goes on his way, and promises to pay more if he needs to. Jesus said, this is what a neighbor looks like. That was in response to, who is my neighbor, Jesus? And he said, this is what a neighbor looks like. It's not a religious person. It's not somebody that, 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 that looks like you or, or even lives by you. It's anybody that's a human being. That's what you're supposed to do. Who is a good neighbor? That guy. Then what did Jesus do? Jesus went out and he lived it. He went out and he acted it. 
He actually went through Samaria, that area that he was talking about, so that he could stop at a well at noon and visit with a woman who had nobody else to be in her life. That's why she was there in the hottest part of the day. And he stopped and he visited with her. That's why Jesus went around and healed people. But when he healed people, he actually touched them. I mean, think about Jesus. He could heal lepers by going, boom, you're healed, right? But he didn't do that. He put his hands on lepers, which had never happened to these people in years. They hadn't had anybody touch them because they were contagious, unclean. Jesus put his hands on them. You see, he he told the parable, and then he explained it, and then he lived it. He told a parable about a a young boy, young punk, who decided to go take all his dad's inheritance and go to the city and have a big wild party, and everything went great for a while until the money ran out, and then all the friends ran out, and then he didn't have anything, and he found himself in the lowest profession that a Jew could find himself in, which was slopping pigs. And he found himself at the bottom, the very, very bottom. Some of you may have walked in here at the very, very bottom today, okay? Understand this. Jesus said when he was at the bottom, he said, ding, ding, ding. I might as well go home because my dad's going to treat the slaves better than than I'm being treated now. And as he's on his way home, the dad sees him, runs to him, grabs him, hugs him, welcomes him home, doesn't even let him apologize, put on a big robe and a ring and a big party and celebrate it because the lost one was home. And then Jesus went around. He explained the parable. He said, this is what the kingdom is about. I did not come for the well. I came for the sick, Jesus said. And then he went out and he lived it. And he spent all of his time with the, the thieves. The tax collectors were thieves. He spent all his time with the prostitutes. He spent his time with the, with the fishermen, with the lowlifes, with the people who nobody else wanted to be around. He, he, he told it, he explained it, and then he lived it. If you were here last week, I talked about the prophecy that Jesus used to start his ministry. I mean, any preacher that's going to get up and start their ministry with with a scripture is going to choose very, very importantly, very, very wisely. And Jesus chose one in his own synagogue, in his own hometown, that probably nobody else would have ever picked. And he said, this is it. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed. He sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty for the captives, release for the prisoners, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what I'm here for. I'm here for freedom. I'm here to give freedom. Now, you have to understand, back in the system, every rabbi, I mean, Jesus was a teacher. He was a rabbi. You need to understand all that. Every rabbi had their own interpretation of how life ought to be lived. There were 613 commands in the Old Testament, different things that you should do and shouldn't do. But the problem was there could be interpreted differently, okay? Uh, and every rabbi would, sit, would, would try to promote his own beliefs. Every rabbi would get a book published, and he'd be like, this is the way that it's supposed to go. And then people would go, yeah, I want to follow that rabbi. And he would, you know, he'd get a bigger book deal, and he'd have a big Twitter platform, and that would be his thing, okay? That's how it worked until another rabbi came along. And so a rabbi's interpretation of the Old Testament law was called his yoke. All right, not like an egg that you just had, like like you put over the necks of beasts of burden. Okay, you would put two, you put a yoke on two different oxen, and so that they could pull together. So what what you're saying is, if if you're going to come under this rabbi, I'm putting his yoke on me. I'm going to come up under his teaching, and I'm going to follow him. And they had different interpretations. For example, you, you you could only walk a certain distance on the Sabbath. That was actually in, you know, the Bible in different interpretations. It was in the Bible that you could do it. So, but every rabbi had their own interpretation of how far that really was. So depending on whether you follow this rabbi, you could walk that far, or this rabbi, you could walk that far. It, uh, one rabbi would say, you can't spit. This is literally how stupid the whole system was. You can't spit on the ground on Sabbath because you're making mud. And that's work. 
Other rabbis said, no, you spit all you want. It doesn't matter. You're just spitting. Okay? Everybody had their own. Physical intimacy, believe it or not. Some rabbis said, no physical intimacy on the Sabbath because that's work. Other rabbis said, no, you should do it twice on the Sabbath because it's worship. I know you're waiting for me to make a joke. I just love that. I just love that. I'm not going to. You see, I'm growing up. If you, if you ever go to Israel, if you ever go someplace where there's a big Jewish population, what you're going to find is a Jewish, elebra- a Jewish ele- elevator, a Sabbath elevator, Shabbat er- elevator. And it'll look something like this. And what it'll do is it'll stop automatically on every floor. Why is that? Because you're not supposed to, according to some rabbis, even push a button on the Sabbath. So if you're ever in Israel, you don't want to go on that one because when you go on that one, it looks a lot like that one. I made a Christmas tree, and it stops on every floor. You're like, and when is this going to be over? You see how ridiculous this is? And Jesus came along, and he said, no, listen. It's not about whether you push a button or don't push a button. It's not about whether you spit. It's not about whether you do the happy, happy on Saturday. It's about the, it's about the relationship with God. And then Jesus came along, and he broke some of their rules. He broke some of their Sabbath rules. He healed on the Sabbath, and he, and he did picked grain on the Sabbath, and he did different things on the Sabbath to show them, look, it's not, not about following a, a rule. It's not about legalism. It's about freedom. This explains why this passage you may have heard before may be interpreted a little bit differently for you today. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And take my yoke upon you. You see that? Take my yoke upon you. Take my teaching on you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find, does this not sound like the best thing ever? Rest for your souls. Imagine these people. These people that are walking around trying to figure out, wait, is it Saturday? Can I spit? How about just rest for your souls? How about just God really loves you? How about the Good Samaritan you know, story? How about, how about the parable of, of the prodigal son and a father that loves you? For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Does that make new sense to you now? The rabbi Jesus is saying, I am different than all the others. I'm here for freedom. Remember how he started it. Freedom for the prisoners. The recovery of sight for the blind. Set the oppressed free. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what I said I was going to be about. And that's what I'm going to be about. And it was very radical for people to hear. And it says that the people were amazed. The word amazed appears 30 times in the Gospels. Three times it is Jesus being amazed at something else. At somebody else's faith. 27 times it's amazed at Jesus. It's people's response to Jesus because he was the greatest teacher of all time. And the early Christians thought of Jesus as the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I hope you understand that. When he was here, even now, all of those things. When the people came back after talking to the woman at the well, they came back and they said, we no longer believe just because of what you said. We've now heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. When you listen to this guy, you know that he must be God's son because, um, as the temple guard said, they were supposed to go arrest him and they came back and they didn't have him. They said, why why didn't you get him here? And they said, no one ever spoke the way this man does. No one ever did. Let's listen to Becky tell us another story about what Jesus has done in her life. Hi, my name is Becky. I'm a 22-year-old single parent. 
I had my son Noah when I was a senior in high school. But thanks to an amazing and loving, supportive family, I was able to graduate early and go on to attend a Christian college. Coming from a religious background, I did not think it would be a tough transition from public education to private education. Little did I know, I was in for a huge culture shock. I had a hard time fitting in with other students, and I had a biblical philosophy class that made me hate everything about religion. I thought everybody was crazy at that school. We had to pray before class, there was chapel every other day, and I really struggled writing my Christian perspective in my papers. I started to go astray from both church and God. It was during that time that I first came to Parkview. I once again thought, you Christian people are crazy. With the rock music and wisecracking pastors, I, until, that was all until I heard the message. The sermon was on, having God, it was on having God have a plan in your life, even though sometimes you hit detours. I started to realize that God had put a bunch of crazy people in my life to this point to help point me to him and help guide me in my journey in a crazy church that helped, me, that helped teach me again that God loves me and has a plan for me. I soon began to realize that Christian people in my life are really crazy but they're also really crazy in love with their God and their Savior, Jesus Christ. I really do believe that God has a plan for me, and I'm thankful for all the detours and people that have been a part of my story. I now have a real relationship with Jesus Christ, and he has changed my life. I graduated from Trinity Christian College, which I grew to love, with a double major in special education and elementary education, and now I have a full-time job as a teacher. I am proud of all my accomplishments, but even more than that, I am so glad that I'm now one of you crazy Christians. Thank you, and thank you to my Savior, Jesus Christ. I have no idea what she's talking about. Jesus, uh, John chapter 9, I'm just going to keep going. Thank you, Becky. I'm just going to keep going. Jesus heals this blind guy. Talk about wisecracking. This is, this is one of my favorite characters in the Bible. One of my top ten guys I want to meet as soon as I get to heaven. It's the guy that was blind and he's healed. Okay. The second thing I want to tell you is that Jesus' miracles were extraordinary. His miracles were extraordinary. Not just his teaching, but his miracles. Listen to the story in John chapter 9. It's so awesome. This, this guy gets healed by Jesus. Jesus, and then they interrogate him. A second time they summoned the man who'd been born blind, and they said, give glory to God by telling the truth. They said, we know this man, they're talking about Jesus, is a sinner. He said, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, and now I see. That's all I got. They said, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He said, I've told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? I mean, he's got a little attitude going here, right? With the, with the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple, and we are disciples of Moses. And we know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. Here's where it gets key, okay? Listen to this. The man answered, Now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. You need proof of who Jesus was? He opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He only listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody's ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man was not from God, he could not do anything. 
If he wasn't from God, you've got to pay attention to the miracles. The dude is like, look, I don't care if it was the Sabbath. I don't care if it was Christmas. I don't care if it was Pulaski Day. What I know is I was blind on Friday and I could see on Saturday. Deal with that. That's all that really matters. Jesus can do miracles. I went out for a cold pop and I got healed. And I got time for that. That's all he had to say. That's all he said is, listen, just pay attention to the miracles. Jesus said the same thing. He said, don't believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, then even though you don't believe me, you've got to believe the works. Nobody's ever heard of a man born blind being healed, and you know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus proved who he was by the teaching that he gave, and he proved who he was by the miracles that he did. John 6, we've already talked about this a little bit, but I've got to go back to the feeding of the 5,000 because John's version tells us that it was a test. That it was a test. When Jesus looked up and saw the great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where should we buy bread for these people to eat? He said it only as a test, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. I love that. Just, you know, hey, hey Philip, what are we going to do? And the disciples started to work it out, you know, humanly. So Philip was like the accountant guy. He's like doing the calculations in his head, click, click, click. Well, Jesus, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to just have a bite. There's not enough money. And then the pragmatic Andrew goes out and he says, uh, uh, here, Hey, I found a boy with five, check this, five small barley loaves and two small fish. As if, you know, like if they would have been big loaves and big fish, then we would be okay feeding the 15,000 people. But no, Lord, they're just small loaves and small fish. Listen to this phrase. But how far will they go among so many? Come on, Drew. How long have you been following this guy for crying out loud? How long have you been following him? He can make the blind man see. You don't think he can handle a McFish sandwich? This is crazy. Jesus said it was a test. What was it a test of? Organization? Ingenuity? Resourcefulness? Well, no, it was a test of their faith, obviously. Do you believe that I can do this? It was a math test. That's what it was. Jesus said, have the people sit down. And there were plenty of grass in there. There was plenty of grass in the place, so the men sat down, 5,000 of them. And then that meant there were that many more. And Jesus took the loaves and gave thanks. I mean, think about this crowd. This is like, you know, this is like United Center stuff, okay? Jesus took the loaves and he gave thanks and he distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. And when they had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets full, because Jesus is a recycler, with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. It was an unbelievable miracle. Everybody got everything that they could eat. Now, what was the test? The test was, do you believe that I can be involved in your stuff? And I think this was more than just uh, 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 about believing in Jesus because they've seen Jesus do miracles. Here's, here's my take on the whole thing. I think the disciples were like, you know, Jesus, we know you can heal the blind guy and we know you can you know, fix the leper and we know you can raise the dead if you want to, but this is just lunch. We don't need you to help us with lunch. You know, they just send the people away. Let them go deal with it. And Jesus is saying, I, I want to be involved in everything in your life. Not just the big stuff, the little stuff. I have the power to help you with everything, even lunch. The test was a test of math. You see, what these disciples did is they said, okay, I got five loaves and I got two fish. I got seven. What they missed out on was the plus one, right? Jesus. Seven plus Jesus equals 12 basketfuls left over. We do the same thing. 
They'd seen him do all these miracles. They just forgot about the plus one. And we do the same thing. This is where it comes into your life and you've got a marriage problem. Maybe you walked in here today and your marriage is on the rocks and you think, well, I got one, two, I got me and my spouse and I got a marriage counselor and I got some friends, four, five, six that are trying to help us, but it's just not working out. That's because you've got to add the plus one. And Jesus cares about your marriage. Very definitely cares about your marriage. You've got to invite him into it. Oh, I got a problem with my kids. Well, guess what? Jesus understands that too. I got two parents and I got a kid, you know, and so there's three. How about the plus one? Is Jesus coming in? Are you praying about this? Are you, are you getting him to help you with this? How about your health? You know, well, I got, I got three different opinions. How about a plus one? How about adding Jesus into the mix because that changes everything? Or your anxiety or a decision that you have to make or loneliness. Sometimes loneliness is the worst because it just feels like it's just one. There's, there's no addition going on at all, but there's always addition because there's always plus one. That's always there. They said of Jesus, yet many in the crowd believed him and were saying, when the Messiah comes, could he do more than this man has done? Of course not. The blind man said, look, I don't know who he is, but I was blind and now I see. You're hearing testimonies today from people who said, look, we were here and now we're here. And that is a testament to the ministry of Jesus Christ. That's how it works. What else is it going to take? Well, the crowd gets so big, by the time we get to Palm Sunday in a few weeks, they, why, did they, why were they so big? Why were they so pumped up? Well, it was because Jesus did the big one. He saved the big one for right before he went into Jerusalem. What was the big one? Dead guy. Four days in the grave. Lazarus, his good best friend. He's dead four days. And Jesus left him in there four days so it wouldn't look like, oh, he was just taking a nap or hiding out in there, you know, and I came along and healed him. He was dead for four days. And in the King James Version, Mary said, but Lord, he stinketh, literally. I mean, you know, his body is going to have started to decompose after four days. Jesus said, hey, bring him out. Boom. He comes out, you know, mummy. He comes out. They unwrap the stuff. And there's Lazarus. So Lazarus is with them now. Lazarus is walking around. I mean, it's one thing to have a guy that said he was born blind walking around with you. But you know this guy's been dead and he's walking around. The crowd is going crazy. So the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. It was because they heard that he had performed this sign to the crowd that they that the Pharisees went out to meet him. And the Pharisees said to each other, look at this. There's nothing we can do about it. The whole world has gone after him. You know, the harder we try to suppress it, the more it grows. It's like country music. There's nothing we can do about it. Why did this happen? Because Jesus was no ordinary man. Because he started a movement and he changed all of history from B.C. to A.D. But the way he did it was by changing lives. He did it by changing lives, and He can change your life, and that's where we've got to come to the end of this thing today. You have an opportunity to follow Jesus as well. When we talk about believing in Jesus, and we talk about John 3.16, and that's all wonderful, but five times in the Bible it says you're supposed to believe in Him. Twenty times Jesus says, follow me, and there's a difference. And I know that some of you are thinking, well, you know what? I couldn't follow Jesus. I got so much junk in my life. I hear this story over and over again. Jesus couldn't possibly want me. He couldn't possibly save me. Remember the prodigal son story? And remember who Jesus' disciples were. Jesus' disciples were fishermen. And they're just, they're just, they were just hourly wage, blue-collar guys down at the docks doing a fishing job. Some of them were former thieves, tax collectors. Some of them were former religious terrorists. 
The zealots. Okay? And many commentators have pointed out that the fact that Jesus called these disciples is remarkable. Because these disciples are not following another rabbi already because no other rabbi would have had them. If these guys wanted to follow another rabbi, I don't know for sure that they did, but if they wanted to follow another rabbi, it would have been much earlier in their life that they would have gone to a rabbi and said, could I follow you? Because rabbis don't ever ask people to follow them. People ask to follow a rabbi. And if they had done that, the rabbi must have said, you know what, no thanks, I don't need you on my team. You know, they're the last to get picked for kickball. They didn't have the right schooling, the right pedigree, the right IQ. That's why they were fishermen. And, and, and all of a sudden, Jesus comes along and He doesn't wait for them to ask to follow Him. He says, hey, you guys follow Me. That's why they dropped their nets immediately and followed Him. Because it was an opportunity of a lifetime. It was an opportunity that nobody else would have ever given them and could ever give them. And He wants to give the same thing to you. The divorced, the bankrupt, the addict, the wealthy, the poor, the in, the out. The educated, the not educated. He wants to do that for you as well. And when he gets ready for his death in John chapter 15, he says, you know what? Listen, I've got to help you to understand something. You did not choose me. I chose you and I appointed you to go bear fruit. So go bear fruit. This is what Jesus wants to say right now. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I picked you, all of you, all of us outcasts to be blessed to be Greek gods, to be rock stars, because my kingdom is upside down and everything is different, and I chose you. Why? So you could get out of going to hell? Well, yeah, at the very bottom, but I chose you so that you could go bear fruit. And that's what I want you to do, and I want it to be fruit that would last. Could Jesus change this group of terrorists, thieves, and fishermen into a group of people that would possibly be able to change the world? Well, we're sitting here today, 2,000 years later, aren't we? They didn't go to another rabbi because no other rabbi would take them. This has profound consequences for us. It means that any of us can follow Jesus. Listen to Judy. Hi, my name is Judy. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, and I struggle with alcoholism. I had my first drink at 15, and although I was raised in church, I left at 17 because I was told that I had unanswerable questions about God. I stopped seeking God, became an atheist, and made alcohol my God. My alcoholism and unbelief escalated through the next 25 years. God, however, has a sense of humor. Toward the end of this period in my life, he placed us in Lubbock, Texas for two years, which is a dry town with a Baptist church on every corner. He did. I was near the end of my drinking and atheism. I just didn't know it. God transferred my husband back to Chicago. Jesus was coming for me, but I didn't know that either. When we returned, three different women in one week invited me to Bible studies. I politely refused the first two, but said yes to the third. I went to the Bible study, tried not to drink when I did my lesson, and with great pride called myself the devil's advocate when I asked my questions. I, I arrived one day and everyone was crying, including a baby that was being held by a member. The leader wanted to pray for God's will for this, for this baby's mother, but was afraid, and I thought, 
What is God's will? And if you're afraid, why ask? The mother of the baby was dying from cancer. I returned home, got down on my knees, and prayed to Jesus, who I did not understand or believe in. I begged for this mother to not die. At the end of my pleading, I said, do you think you could help me stop drinking too? It was that simple and yet that profound. That was a Tuesday. I drank until Friday and suddenly stopped. I was three days in my own tomb of unbelief in alcoholism until Jesus resurrected me. That was March 20th, 1987. I did not yet understand, but I believed. I'd been transformed and was beginning a life that would be filled with the love of Jesus and no alcohol. I was hungry and thirsty for the word. Through Celebrate Recovery, I now have a wonderful opportunity to tell others what Jesus did for me and will do for them if they will let him. There is a recovery saying, I can't, he can, let him. I hope that if you need Jesus, you will let him do a miracle in your life and do what you can't. Thank you. There is a saying in Old Testament, uh, in Old Testament oral tradition that kind of sums up what I want to talk about. Uh, it, is, it is very, very simple. It's that, I hope you're covered in the dust of your rabbi. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. In other words, may you be so committed to be so close to your rabbi when you follow him, when you actually follow Jesus, that you will be so close to him that you will be covered in his dust. Those of us just got back from Kenya, man, it was just dust all the time. You're following the van in front of you, you're going to have dust all over you. If you follow behind Jesus, there's going to be dust. May you be so close behind him that the dust of the rabbi will be all over you. What happens to ordinary people who are covered in the dust of the rabbi? Well, not only do they get his teaching, not only do they understand his miracles, but they get his power. This is what's so significant. I love this verse from Acts chapter 4. Look what happened to the fishermen. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, the fishermen, and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, what were they? They were, same word, same word they were with Jesus. They were amazed. And they took note that these men had Jesus' dust all over them. That's what happens. That's how Jesus changed the world. And he can do the same thing for you. If you get his dust on you, you can change the world. You can follow him. What do you do? Well, yeah, you believe. You believe and you confess, the Bible says. And you express that. You heard some of our testimonies talk about baptism. Are you ready for a jump start in your spiritual life two weeks from now? Mass baptisms. Bring a change of clothes or don't. Just don't worry about it. It's going to be a nice weekend, Palm Sunday, because we're going to baptize hundreds of people. You need to follow Jesus in baptism like Jesus did, like every follower of Jesus did in the Bible. That very hour of the night, they went out and they got baptized. That's what they did. And if you haven't done that yet, and submitted to the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, you need to do that. That will help you jumpstart the dust of the rabbi all over you. And then what do you do? Then you stay right on Jesus' tail. And you follow Him. It's called discipleship. It's called apprenticeship. It's called being a follower. 
And that's easy because his yoke is easy because his yoke is about freedom, but discipleship is still something that is going to be a choice for you. Jesus said when large crowds were traveling with him, he said, whoever does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Remember, I said, blessed are you when you're persecuted. Blessed are you when you mourn. Sometimes this thing's going to be upside down. Sometimes it's not going to be easy. You've got to decide that you want to follow him all the way and be covered in the dust of the rabbi. And that's the journey that we offer for you. And why wouldn't you want to follow him? He's amazing. Hi, my name is Don. I was blind, I was lame, I was dead. I learned young that you can play the system. I learned shame and how to live with it. I learned guilt and how to deal with it. I learned how to use substances to live in the world. From my sophomore year of high school to my early 40s, I was on one thing or another pretty much the entire time. The bottoms were constant and affected everyone near me. And the real victims of that life were my kids. They had nothing to do with the hell on earth they were forced to live through because of my selfish actions. So after years in and out of 12-step programs, still the only prayer I prayed was, God, if you're really there, please let me not wake up. Three months sober for about the 20th time, and God puts me on Wolf Road on a Saturday afternoon. I asked around about the constant traffic jams, and I was told it's some kind of rock and roll church. Really? So the next Saturday, instead of driving through the traffic jam, I turn in. Wow, it was a rock and roll church. But the sermon spoke directly to me. I figured I'd go next week on a Sunday to see if it felt more like church. So the next Sunday I go, and the pastor repels from the ceiling, lands next to me, and gives me a high five. Not expecting that, but the sermon, Jesus came for the liars, cheaters, sick and broken. Jesus came for me. Nothing has made more sense to me. I wanted to begin my journey. I wanted to be healed. I was sick of being sick, and through Jesus I had hope. How could I be a part of this? Serve? Join a group? Get dunked. There had to be a better way. So for the first time in my life, I made a conscious decision to accept Christ. Today, people ask how I'm doing. There's only one answer to that. I'm a walking miracle. What else can I be? I was dead, yet I'm born again. I was blind, but now I see. Boy, do I see. The more I turn my will over to God, the better life gets. A life run on my will, it's ugly. It's hell on earth. I've lived it. I've seen it. But because Jesus died for me, I have a chance. He paid my debt. And there's no shame. No guilt. It's been wiped away. And that makes me a walking miracle. Jesus was extraordinary in his teaching and his miracles. And most importantly, as we come to communion time, he was extraordinary as a king. Because there's only been one time in history where a king hasn't asked his subjects to die for him, but turned around and died for his subjects. What we're going to do at communion time is give you an opportunity to allow the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus to happen even inside of you. I don't believe this is actually the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. It's a symbol of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. But as you eat, as you drink, you are remembering what Jesus did for you, and it should empower you. If they could see Peter and John, if Peter and John could go change the world, Peter could lead the first church as a fisherman. Yeah, he had three years with Jesus. 
But you saw at the end of his life that he still wasn't much better than he was when he started. And he fell away right at the end. But after Jesus left and the Spirit came upon him, he was able to change the world. And the same thing can happen for you. So, so let that happen to you at communion time right now. As we pray and as we, as we get ready to just take these emblems, remember that Jesus does live in you. And if he lives in you, you can be amazing. You can be extraordinary. Let's pray together. Jesus, there are people in this room that need you to live in them, and they need to just accept you. They just need to say right now, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to be a disciple of yours. I accept your gift for me on the cross. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. Just let them in their hearts say that right now. And for those of us who've already made that decision, all of us need to remember the plus one in our life whether it's lunch, whether it's our sight, whether it's our marriage, whether it's whatever going on in our life, we need to remember the plus one. And the power of the plus one is not only available from the outside, but it's available from the inside of us. And it can change us. And we can live an amazing life as we follow you. Lord, be with us as we follow you so closely that we have your dust on us as we go. And let it transform our lives. Be with us as we take this communion right now. In Jesus' name, amen.